there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girl's night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On the last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin and Roger defended their honor in Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs. Nothing about Straw Dogs is necessarily enjoyable. It is a rough movie. It is rather horrific. To me, it was like a pot of boiling water that's coming to a boil. It's bubbling on the inside and it's getting hotter and hotter and pretty soon you're boiling over and that's the moment it boils over. And now we bring you The After Show, your backstage pass to exclusive content, answers to your burning questions, and even more film discussion. I'm your chugo, Gala Avery. On this episode of The After Show, I'm unlocking the video vault, our backlog of full film discussions between Quentin and Roger that have yet to make it on the air. Let's unlock the vault and see what we find. Out of the vault, I present a discussion on Brian Forbes' 1983 film, Better Late Than Never. Hargreaves? Who the hell is Hargreaves? Summon to Monte Carlo and the fun starts in the south of France. The grandfathers, the governess... The heiress. Very nice. Better luck than never. never Starring one. David Niven, Maggie Just Smith, Art Carney. A comedy uh, with yes. a difference. Yes. I haven't slipped up there. Well, I knew you weren't beach people the moment that you spoke to me. What did he say when he picked you up? <clears throat> well, he didn't exactly pick me up. <laughs> Mr. Dunbar! Better late than never. Oh, my God. Before we get into the discussion on Better Late Than Never, I've got part five of my interview with Roger. Missed part four? Make sure to go back to After Show episode 13 so you don't miss a thing. In this next segment, Roger and I talk about the movies that made him want to be a filmmaker and the directors that continue to inspire him. What was the movie that made you want to start making movies? A Clockwork Orange. Yeah. 
for sure. Well, I mean, I might have like been as influenced by, you know, animation and Rankin Bass and, uh, uh, in particular stop motion animation. I may have been fascinated early with that, but it was, um, it was Clockwork Orange, which my dad took me to. He would take me everywhere. He would just take me everywhere. My dad, it's like, if he was going to a bar to drink with his friends and play pool, he'd take me to play pool with them. Um, and so when, so consequently I went to a ton of movies with him, like early films, probably just, you know, going to see a film, take my son. And that was one of the first movie going experiences that I remember. What's weird is it could it have been? I remember, I think where I saw it, I think it was at the South Bay, um, the UA South Bay, if I'm correct, that's where we saw it. And, um, uh, it was the first time I understood what a filmmaker did. Mm-hmm. I understood that I was looking through someone else's eyes. I wasn't watching a normal movie. Like Sound of Music, I think, was one of my favorite films leading up to that. Mm-hmm. Wow, to go from Sound of Music to A Clockwork Orange, that's a, that's a pretty big jump. Well, both of them are super powerful visions. And I wouldn't even say that like, Clockwork Orange has this rep of being like, you know, kind of violent Raunch- and well, raunchy and violent and uh but I think I consider it a highly moral film. Well, I'll that, agree with that. That has a strong moral center that is simply explaining a kind of moral play. It's not any different than reading an O. Henry story or even an Aesop fable. Well, also, I think it's about just as sexual as a Ken Russell film is. Yeah. And I feel the same way. And you know, I feel the same way about Ken Russell. Actually, Ken Russell is probably a good example of somebody who I am nuts for and crazy for that I will recommend to people no matter what. And, um, and then they'll, they'll just nod later and go, oh, yeah, 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 I saw Tommy. Tommy's good. Why are you so crazy about it? <laughs> so actually, Ken Russell is a good segue. What do you think are your biggest inspirations? Um, well, Stanley Kubrick, number yeah. one. Uh, I've always felt that like Kubrick, his um, raison d'etre, his, his reason for being, his reason for being a filmmaker is the reason – I would like to be a filmmaker. His approach to filmmaking, his approach to family, his approach, like the more I read about Kubrick, other than some of his neuroses, which I've learned that I share a few of those as well. I took some of those on as well. Um, uh, you know, other than, I just, I, I so greatly admire his vision and his reason for his vision, what he says and how he says it and how he hides things. Like, and that's, I think, most of what I appreciate about him mm-hmm. is how he hides, like, I mean, one would say Easter eggs now, but really like a kind of hermetic code. Mm-hmm. Kubrick writes a hermetic code. He, um, there's a book called Flickr, um, which is one of my very favorite books. Uh, it's if I could adapt any movie into it, it almost is there's no point in making it into a movie. It's it's moot at this point because we're already at end of days, but um. The the book, at one point, I would have loved to have made that book. And um, in it, there is a filmmaker, a German filmmaker, who has made a movie called Sex. And when projected in Berlin during the Weimar years, as legend had it, among these film fans who were like talking about the movie and inside of the book. Inside of the book. Yeah. The movie is about these film fans and they've heard about this movie and this filmmaker. And he made this movie called Sex. And apparently it was so charged that 
orgies would spontaneously erupt in movie theaters during the time that the movie was made. And so it's become legendary. So the filmmaker, uh, he eventually came to Hollywood and did some, did some film, but he made a movie supposedly called Death, where if you see it, you die. And the film has been put into, you know, it's been, mm -hmm. it's only spoken about in legend at this point. And the book is about the kind of search for that hidden movie, that lost film. And which supposedly will bring around, uh, bring about a person's death. Okay. So inside of the book, they talk about the mechanics of how this works. And they talk about how movies come from churches and stained glass paintings. And that when you watch a movie, you're looking through a tiny stained glass painting, a stained glass image, rather stained glass window. You're looking through this window of glass and that there's this flicker. The book is called Flicker. And there's this flicker that occurs when the sunlight dances upon certain kinds of Venetian glass that's put into these uh, stained glass windows. And, and they do. When you go to Chartres, the stained glass window there is made of special glass. Like they cannot make this glass anymore. And so uh, the idea is that the church is even built like to shape like a cross because you're going to hear binaural sound. Mm -hmm. And when the chanting occurs and the, the pipe organ plays and all of these are actually kind of proto movies. And that's why Quentin and I often talked about, you know, we, we would look at the movie theater as that's our church. Mm -hmm. That's where we go to, to, learn about the mythologies and myths and traditions of our, of our, you know, of our world. And so in this book, this filmmaker like encodes things into the films that, that travel into your brain. And this is real. This really happens. This is stuff that Goebbels was really into. And this, the book gets into that. They talk about how the filmmaker, you know, basically got co-opted by the Nazis and mm -hmm. he had to escape them and he made this film, but then the film got put into a vault. It's like, there's this whole mythology behind it, but this was something Goebbels was really in, into and uh, that the Nazis were really into this idea that a movie can program you. It can program your brain. And it's more than a movie because now you, you know, we've got 120 frame per second, probably even more than that, uh, you know, uh, phones that are sending you information and programming your brain. I mean, it, 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 you're susceptible when you're in a dream state. And this was the thing that, you know, all the early 19, uh, hundreds documents like the 1930s documents were about, you know, when they were analyzing what is cinema and it, when you sit in the theater and you have this kind of communal experience where you're, where everything else is turned off and you're looking at the flicker of the screen at 24 frames a second. And these images are flashing before you and it's activating beta cycles in your brain as you use the pers persistence of vision to, to stitch in your brain these still images together to create the illusion of motion. And you're an active participant in that. What it does is it puts you into a kind of waking dream state where you're dreaming. You're looking at a dream and you're interpolating a dream into, into, your, in, into your consciousness. And this can deliver secret information. And so that was what the book was about. But the book was based on, on real science that mm -hmm. was being conducted at that time. Science that to this day, one can read about at MIT, <laughs> where uh, I've read about all these differences in media. So um, Kubrick, I always thought, was like that. He hides things into his films. I mean, we've seen the Encodes documentary. Them, yeah. Yeah, we've seen the documentary Room 247. Two, three, seven. Two, three, seven. And um, 
you know, that movie makes a big, uh, big to do about, you know, chairs that pop in and out of, I mean, being a filmmaker and understanding Kubrick a little bit, being a student of his, I now realize, no, the movie was made over a long period of time. That chair in the background is not a symbol. It's just a continuity error popping in and out of the, uh, the scenes. And so that stuff does happen. Accidents do happen. But the act of making a movie really is the act of encoding a dream with symbolic imagery that will affect the viewer and hopefully in a positive way because we as filmmakers and as frankly as video game designers and as storytellers storytellers and, and as media artists have the power to change the world and we and can creatives. do it for the better we can create peace if we if we try hard enough the problem is it's a lot easier to tell stories about revenge than it is to tell stories about forgiveness and so we need to work harder as filmmakers <laughs> i guess <laughs> So that's one of the reasons I love Kubrick as a, as a filmmaker is that he does that. Ken Russell absolutely does that. We know Ken Russell does it. And what they're doing is what the surrealists do. As you know, I long have chased a movie about Salvador Dali, mm-hmm. which is really a movie about the subconscious. It's not a movie about surrealism per se or the surrealist movement or even about Dali. It's a movie about me and it's a movie about subconscious. And so um, I haven't made that film, but I've thought a lot about it. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Before we remove Better Late Than Never from the vault, here's a question that a fellow podcaster had for Quentin and Roger that made them speculate some cinema. So everyone just knows Quentin reached across the table and said, what's that question? Because there is a very illustrative drawing of Steve McQueen on the envelope. Yeah, as if Marvel Comics like, or, or, or uh, uh, Carlton Comics was doing a Steve McQueen issue. This one comes from Kelsey Norman in Calgary, Alberta. Dear Quentin and Roger, in what direction do you think Steve McQueen's career would have gone as an actor and a filmmaker if he hadn't have passed away in 1980? Cinema speculation. What types of roles do you think he would have taken on? And do you think he would have transitioned to being a director in an official capacity? Thank you. Keep up the great work. Regards, Kelsey Norman, host and producer of Speeding Bullet, the Life and Films of Steve McQueen podcast. That's a very good question. Um, I do think at a certain point in the 70s, Steve McQueen became jaded. And he had kind of done everything there is to do. And uh, he kind of didn't care about his career that much anymore. I mean, he more or less stopped making movies for a while after uh, uh, Towering Inferno until he came back. And during that time that he was gone... You know, he basically uh, grew a beard, got fat, and then uh, started just hung out with uh, Ellen McGraw in uh, Malibu. And 
Sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> I can I can I can see that life. That I, that I, I can't argue with that that much. I think he actually had a big ranch in outside of Santa Paula. Yeah, but I think he he spent most of his time in Malibu, though. I think. I think. In any case, he's like a Jonathan-like character. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's yeah, out yeah. there living on his ranch. Yeah, he's out there. You know, he's uh, you know uh, uh, from Rollerball. Yeah, exactly. She was done with it. Yeah, you know, she was done with movies. He was done with movies for a while. Because he was so rich and because he was so jaded, I don't know what he would have done because I don't know what he wanted to do. I don't think it was ever like he wanted to, you know, uh, uh, start moving into father character actor roles and like deliver and win an Oscar. I don't think there was that kind of thing. However, I will say, okay, I can't imagine a world where Steve McQueen would say yes to a TV show because I can't imagine a world where he'd want to do a TV show again and have to work that hard. However, if you look at the last movie he did, The Hunter, The Hunter looks like a pilot. For a Steve McQueen TV show. It looks like you, because the hunter is, he plays a a modern day bounty hunter. It feels like a TV movie. It's even directed by Buzz Kulik, who like specialized in TV movies. And it's a fun little TV movie, but it it feels like a pilot. If for, if Steve McQueen was going to do a TV show, you know, it's like his last movie, he plays a modern day bounty hunter. The the show that made him successful was Wanted Dead or Alive, where he plays yeah. a bounty hunter. So it actually even makes sense that if he actually was going to go back to TV, it would be as a modern day bounty hunter. <laughs> During a mid-season recording break, we all went our separate ways and watched plenty of movies on our own. When we got back together, we enjoyed a relaxed recording session catching each other up on the titles that we had seen. Quentin brought Better Late Than Never to the table, and as soon as we saw the VHS box, we knew we had to hear more about it. And, in a rare turn of events, we did not start out by reading the back of the box. All right, now, this is one. One, I think you guys are going to love the box cover for this. I was eyeing it. All right, yeah. So I'm going to let you guys enjoy the box cover. So it's a key video box, and Quentin and Roger know I love key video because it has that stylish rainbow wrapping around it. Better late than never box, though, is kind of weird because it has these two old guys and this really hot, like, blonde chick in a red strapless bikini between them. And she's kind of, like, pulling them closer to her. But it's just, like, this really kind of awesome cover that would look great on a shelf. Excellent box art. Yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, it's an international British comedy uh, called Better Late Than Never. That I'm positive never got a, a Los Angeles like theatrical release. I think went. I love that poster that's on the front of the I box. know. I'm sure it play I actually wouldn't mind a British quad of that poster. That but would be cool. Even with David Niven and Art Carney back, well, no, back no, in the day, like I'm sure I'm sure it played I'm sure it played in Europe, but I don't think I, I don't think it it played in America theatrically. Uh, but the thing is, so it's it's David Niven, Art Carney, Maggie Smith, and Catherine Hicks, who, if you remember, she was the star of the uh, big uh, Marilyn Monroe miniseries mm-hmm. that they did about Marilyn Monroe at the time. At that time, David Niven's son was producing some of his movies, and he was like teamed with with Alex Haley's son, Alex yeah, Haley right. Jr., yeah. Jack Haley Jr., Jack or Jack Haley. Haley, I guess. So they did Escape to Athena, which also had David Niven, and then there's this one. This is the weirdest back, like, that is the weirdest plot I've ever read. Yeah, it's got a very bizarre plot. I'll describe the plot. I don't want you to read the plot. Part yeah, of I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to read the plot. The only, the only re- yeah, the only reason to do the story is to tell the plot of the movie. Taking away right. from you. So I think this is probably the last movie that David Niven is officially the lead 
star of. I think that after this, the I, 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 the only other thing I think he did after this, if I'm not mistaken, there might be a few things in there in the, in the meantime, but I think that got any kind of play was that weird cameo he did in Curse of the Pink Panther, which right. was that compilation Pink Panther movie where they filmed him playing the character, but uh, his voice was so bad that they couldn't use him, so Rich Little dubs him. So I think this is the last one before that. Rich Little, the impersonation guy comes uh, yeah. in to do you. It's like- Yeah, exactly. Th- that is such a- I saw that- I can't tell if that's like- wonderful a fantastic wonderful hollywood moment of support oh, or or if it's like okay, here's some the kind thing. of weird here's the thing i saw it at the movies and i already knew all about that you never would have known yeah i the way i saw chris at the pink panther i don't think i would have known it was it wasn't david niven when i was watching it. and has art carney done like harry and tonto yet oh yeah no, no, no yeah. that was in 73 so this, okay, this yeah. is 10 years later this is 10 years later he never became the great character actor that is suggested from harry and tonto right. but uh uh so The whole idea of this movie is uh, these two old dudes, David Niven and and Art Carney, are sent a train ticket to go to the south of France. They live in England or something like that. They're they're both at loose ends, so it's not really clear what they're going to see, but somebody wants to see them. A a lawyer wants to have a meeting with them, maybe about a will will situation, and, and he sends them a ticket. So they go. While they're on the train... They see each other, and R. Carney recognizes the guy. He goes, I know you. Back during the war, like in the 40s. <laughs> <laughs> you, stole, you stole my girlfriend. You stole the only woman I ever loved. And you came by with your English charm and everything, and you stole her away. And he's like, okay, yes, I remember you. You were that GI guy. You are that guy. And uh, it makes you feel any better. I didn't stay with her either. All right. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. She went no, back. it doesn't make me feel better. Yeah, I, just, yeah. I just screwed up your life and moved on. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, so, like David, coming out of David Niven, that would be terrible. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, wonderful, terrible. Like, yeah. So they're like, you know, so he was the, the he was the, you know, uh, stairway to heaven, proper British RAF officer. And, yeah. and R. Carney was like the dog face American. And uh, so they knew each other back then. And so Arcadi's giving him shit. Okay, then they both show up at the l- lawyer's uh, office and they show up together and they realize, holy shit, we didn't just happen to be on that train by accident. Well, turns out that the woman that they both loved has died. And this is the reading of her will. And she wanted them both there. And, and it's Lionel Jeffries, who's a British actor who's hysterically funny. It's like, he, I can't believe how funny he is in this movie. He's the guy from First Men in the Moon. Yeah. Uh, uh, he's the lawyer. And he's like, uh, uh, okay, I could read what she said, but uh, she wanted you to hear it from herself instead. <laughs> so he plays a tape and she's recorded this tape. And she's like, look, uh, Guy and Hugh or whatever their names were, you know, uh, uh, look, I loved you both. You both were so different, but I, I loved you both. I could never choose between the two of you. But the point being is I had a daughter and it was with one of you and I don't know who it was. And I just always imagined, uh, I never wanted to make a decision. I always just imagined that you were both the father. So anyway, we had a daughter. And so like, okay, so they're like, oh, we have a daughter. Okay, well, what's going on? So who is this daughter? And then the lawyer is like, okay, well, here's the thing. The daughter died. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yes, okay. Okay, well, okay. Like, well, just, well, let me get this straight. Okay, so Jennifer, okay, the girl they all know who, who loved them both. Okay, she's dead. Yes, she's dead. And then one of us sired a daughter with Jennifer. Yes. 
but the daughter died. Her and her incredibly rich husband died on an auto accident and they have left a granddaughter. So the grandmother has raised the daughter. Now the grandmother's dying. So one of them is the paternal grandfather of this granddaughter. Since she couldn't ever decide who she loved more, uh, she wants the granddaughter to make the decision. So what's going to happen is uh, you're all put up in the south of France for a month, however long it takes. <laughs> and I want you to hang out with the young girl. She has a nanny. The nanny is uh, uh, Maggie Smith. I want you to hang out with the girl. And the girl will decide who she wants to be her grandfather and be her caretaker along with the nanny. And whoever she decides will get an annuity for the rest of their life. All right, they'll, 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 because yeah, she's loaded, the kid's loaded. So you'll be living the lap of luxury while you raise the kid, but then even after the kid gets to be of an age, you'll have an annuity. But how long are these fucking guys going to last anyway? <laughs> They're not going to last till she's 20. <laughs> so that's the plot. So at first they're like, well, we're not going to hop and jump for this bullshit. But no, they're both at ends. So they both, they're, they're, they're both, they're not con men, but they might as well be They con need men. the money. They need the money. They need the cash. They need the cash. So then they're like, you know, trying to play off of each other to get the favors of, of the young girl. But then naturally, they all both fall in love with the young girl. And the young girl is a real pill and she's a spoiled brat. But then naturally, she succumbs to the charms of the two old duffers. All right. And she loves them both. And they start liking each other. And they, they, they kind of create a nice little family union. And the girl's a little bit of a joker. So Catherine Hicks shows up. Okay, okay, I just want to, okay, I'm glad because I for a second I thought there was gonna go like some other direction where like the little girl was somehow this on the cover. No, 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 no. No, the great cover, which I mean I I want this poster. If you read the back of the box, the very last line is like, and she's like more woman than they can handle. And I was like, uh, like, is it gonna be like a freaky Friday kind of thing? No, 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 no. It's not a no, there's not a freaky Friday thing. But just, the, just freaky. But they're at the, you know, they're at some famous fucking hotel. In the south of France, like, in, you know, in, you know, a Dirty Rotten Scoundrels area. Like the Negresco or something. And then, like, so David Niven meets Catherine Hicks in the bar and, like, invites her up and she comes up to hang out with him a little bit. And the thing that's amazing is as old as David Niven is in this movie, and he's, he's old. He's an elderly man. And it, it's, it's yeah, he's still presented. David, still David Niven. It's presented yeah. that he's an elderly man. All right. He still is. Trim and slim as he ever was, as he was in Stairway to Heaven. You know, that David Niven had that thing that from the 60s on, he kind of just always looked the same age. Well, he just looks like an older version of that dude. Mm -hmm. So not only do you buy him as the leading man of this motion picture, you buy him as a masculine, even sexual presence mm -hmm. as a leading man. So it's not utterly ridiculous that maybe he picked up Catherine Hicks. All right, at the bar, and then they came up, and who knows what's going to happen, but but that there's a sexual element. There could be a sexual element. You wouldn't buy it if R. Carney picked her up yeah. in the bar, but you buy it with David Niven. And the fact that you buy it is actually kind of amazing, frankly. Yeah, it's own feet. Oh, oh, yeah, but like, for instance, just to show you that the little girl's a bit of a joker in it, too. So uh, when she meets Catherine Hicks, the little girl, and and, you know, and Catherine Hicks is more of a, womanly woman so she like dresses her up and like mm -hmm. they get to do more girly shit 
Uh, they go shopping together and everything. The little girl tells Catherine Hicks that both Art Cardi and David Niven are like billionaires. <laughs> that they're like these, these rich dudes, like these you know, tycoons well, or something like that. One of them is about to be. Yeah. And, uh, but she does that just to fuck with Catherine Hicks because she knows that Catherine Hicks is a gold digger. So now she'll put all of her charm on both of these guys. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. Um, but okay, here's the thing that made the movie completely enjoyable. Everything I described is enjoyable. It's a very fun movie. It's completely inconsequential. It's not a real movie. But for one of those not real movies, it's a very enjoyable, especially of the 80s of this international yeah. tax shelter set. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's a very- Dutch, Dutch, Dutch Luxembourg tax, tax deal. Kind of. Yeah. You have to say, say it again. That. You're like doing Dutch, a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah. Dutch Luxembourg tax deal. Yeah. It's it, was very, big, it was a big thing back then. Yeah. It's very enjoyable. But the thing about it that makes it for me, absolutely makes it for me, is the young girl- in the movie sounds exactly like Peppa Pig. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like you're, it, it's as if you're watching a movie starring Peppa Pig. And you're like getting a high dosage of Peppa Pig lately. Oh, I know exactly <laughs> what Peppa Pig sounds like. All right. And the supporting characters sound like Daddy Pig and Mommy Pig. Oh, God. And, and, it's having like Peppa Pig like. And Miss Rabbit. All right. They sound like all the characters. <laughs> uh, she even looks like Peppa Pig. I don't mean that as an insult because Peppa Pig is kind of cute. All right. But, uh, uh, um, but yeah, so, uh, so all that added to Together made this movie a very enjoyable watch. Who is Brian Forbes? Quentin comes in with some history about the director, including the movies you'll know him for, and some that you may have never even heard of. So, so uh, tell us about Brian Forbes. Well, Brian Forbes, the director of Brian uh, Forbes, is a really interesting uh, uh, British director of that time. He started off as an actor, so he's in. Uh, all he, those movies you, you that I watched. He wrote this as well. He wrote yeah, yeah, this. Uh -huh. He writes a lot of his scripts. All those movies that I, I, I uh, was watching with Edgar, you know, during this whole pandemic, right. all these British all movies. All the British movies. Yeah. yeah. You guys went on your British kick. He's literally acting in almost every single one of them. And he started directing in the late 50s, I believe, or early 60s. And now um, he's done a lot of movies, but- his classic British movie of that time, even though I'm sure there's, he might have a, there might be three movies fighting for that title, but I think the number one one fighting for that title is he did Seance on a Wet Afternoon. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Richard Attenborough, of course, the, the kidnapping the Attenborough movie. Yeah. yeah. Now that was one of those movies that Lance had one of his own special copies of. Yeah. Because only he had a copy of it and he had his own little made up little box. Yeah, right, it was impossible to get the yeah. Gabby made for him. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, he, he did a lot of movies, but like the movie that you'll know him the most for in the 70s is The Stepford Wives. Oh, that's right. Okay, of course. Yeah. I, I, you know what? I did look him up, actually, because yeah. I saw Stepford He did The Stepford Wives, and, yeah, right. and, and he did a movie that I seemingly alone am, am a fan of, is he did the sequel to National Velvet, International Velvet, with uh, uh, Tatum O'Neill. And I really liked that movie. <laughs> I liked that movie a lot when I saw that when I was a kid. Uh, I keep trying to show it for the, the kitty matinee, all right, uh, at the New Beverly. And we show it once or twice. I want to show it more. And then Julie's always just like, nobody goes to see it, Quentin. We just can't keep like, showing international only, only Velvet. Only Quentin is going to go see yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, but it's Tatum O'Neill. I know. Exactly. Like, when you were our age back yeah. then, uh -huh. like, she was the movie star. Yeah. Christopher Plummer's in it. Anthony Hopkins yeah. is, the, is the equestrian coach. So this is towards the end of his career, all right? Uh, but, you know, but it's obviously a situation where they all like Brian Forbes and he likes all of them. And they're all friends. And they all went to the south of fucking France yeah. and had a ball. Yeah. I mean, like, it's funny because- There's a lot of those directors down there. Those British directors are all living throughout and all, the south of France. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, no, you can tell. Yeah. You can tell that, like, they uh, that at least David Niven and- uh, 
Brian Forbes probably had villas. Well, I, I, I lived in Cap Antique for a yeah, number yeah. of years, uh, way back when. And uh, I can tell you, like, all those Bond directors mm-hmm. live down there. <laughs> you know, Roger Moore lived down there. Okay, now speaking you of- know, John speaking, Malkovich was speaking around the corner. Speaking of which, I came across uh, my, in the collection, I came across some 50s um, Lewis Gilbert movies that I wanted to, like, watch at least one of them. Okay, for where I'm coming from, to redeem yeah. Lewis Gilbert, for where you're coming from, just to show how awesome he is. Yeah, yeah. For, for me, <laughs> it's- to, ar- show, to show what a renaissance man he could truly be. Yeah, to me, it's anthropology <laughs> or archaeology or something. Like, well, it just, just shows you. It's just, he goes from one hit to the next. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a true renaissance man. I wanted for Lewis Gilbert redemption. <laughs> <laughs> But Gala actually uh, wanted to bring this up. Another film that you, if you could uh, track down on, on video cassette, that would be cool. That fits into the Brian Forbes category of this era. And this got a theatrical release. Is a film I've always kind of wanted to see. A film he did called Sunday Lovers. And oh, yeah, I know this movie. Yes, yeah, so, well, it got it got played. I never saw it, but yeah. it got played. Sunday Lovers was uh, one of those uh, triptychs kind of film where there. Uh, all four uh, sexually nefarious uh, comedy stories. Yeah. All from different countries, all but different directors. And so um, uh, Gene Wilder uh, stars and directs the American one. Uh, oh, what a treat. Brian Forbes uh, directs the British one, which stars uh, Roger Moore and Lynn Redgrave. Another they were, treat. They were probably neighbors. Yeah, like, yeah, literally, yeah, yeah. Roger Moore lived down there. Like, I'm sure he did, too. Like, mm. yeah. Edward Montranaro, the guy who did La Caja Folle, oh, all right, yeah, directs yeah. his version with Ugo Tassani, all right, from La Caja Folle. And there might be a fourth one in there. All right, but so, so, but there's definitely an Italian one, definitely a British one, definitely an American one. Yeah. Wait, did okay. you say there was a French one? There's got to be a French one. I'm sure there's a French one, yeah, but I can't remember what the, the French south one of France, is. For sure, there's a French one. Josh is trying to look it up, and I don't. I reject that. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I'm sure my mother. <laughs> my mom is doing research on the movie on the show. All right, <laughs> no, all you have to do is look it up. I, okay, what I don't, what I don't remember doesn't exist. I'm, I'm sure it was. <laughs> I'm sure it was shot at Le Studio Victorine. Le Studio yeah. Victorine there in Nice. It was probably shot yeah. there. If this conversation got you interested in watching Better Late Than Never, you can either hunt for the key video VHS at your local store, buy a PAL DVD, or pray for the day that it becomes readily available. By the way, I did track down Sunday Lovers. There's no VHS release of it, but I managed to get a PAL DVD of the movie. Unfortunately, though, it didn't come with English subtitles, so we had to try our best with the French and Italian sections. However, we did watch the portions directed by Gene Wilder and Brian Forbes, since they were in English. They were pretty weird and uncomfortable. <laughs> Enough said. Before I close the shop for today, here's a segment from the main episode, all about directors being confronted about the violence in their movies. Oddly enough, one of the only directors that whenever confronted about the violence in their movies, they go, hey, I like it. I like that shit is Paul Verhoeven. Yeah. He yeah. does not play that dick suck game. No. For instance, I actually heard uh, uh, James Cameron say uh, that he was on a panel. There's a bunch of uh, directors who do violent movies and they're asking them this violent question. And and James Cameron talked about how he's going through hoops trying to put a, a, a Tony spin on everything. And then Paul Verhoeven, hey, it's a movie. All right, I like violence. It's, it's fun. The audience likes it. I mean, what the hell are we supposed to do? The goddamn thing's called Robocop. What do you expect? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want me to hold back? And, <laughs> and Cameron was like, why didn't I say that? Why didn't I just say it's fun to watch the Terminator kill all the cops in the fucking police station? <laughs> 
Because it is. <laughs> because it is. All right. Uh, um, and so uh, Paul was probably there with Robocop. Yeah, which, probably. Yeah. Which was like uh, cr- crazily criticized and also his Starship Trooper like, crazily misunderstood. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he doesn't care. Yeah. But like, the thing. Yeah. He just, he's, he's like, you're no, not, he's you, like, no, he, you just don't get it. You're too. You're not smart enough. No, he's he's he, you know, he's he's a chip off the old block from Ken Russell. He doesn't give a fuck what you say. Yeah, All right. Exactly. You know, he's doing he no, knows what he's doing. I tell you, he gets off on it. Yeah, he gets and he gets off. On he it. gets off. On Freaking it. gets off on it, too. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> they love he, yeah. 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 But, but, but only privately. He'll be that way. All right. <laughs> and that's the show. Thank you so much for tuning into the Video Archives After Show. Next week, join Quentin and Roger as they discuss three new films. Want to know ahead of time what we're watching? Here's a riddle for all of you loyal fans out there. Try and figure it out. The first film is a cop comedy that includes five Oscar nominees harmonizing together for the first time. The second film stars a returning Video Archive's leading man. He's a chameleon with his performances and accents. And this time, he's playing an Irishman in his revenge-o-matic pop boiler. The third is a Russian film that just may have inspired Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got a paper on stellar bodies due. I'm Gala Avery, signing out. See you next time on the Video Archives After Show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 